it's episode 101. That means we're over the hump. Feels good. We basically have license to do whatever we want. So we thought to celebrate, let's bring back our buddy Brent, who joins us now from the Federation. Hey, Brent. Well, hey, uh, uh, the space, right? We're talking space. Oh, no, no. We're talking NextCloud Federation, which is really Alex's brainchild. <laughs> How'd you like that one out? <laughs> You're the one that's like, Brent knows about Federation. I want him on the show. We got to talk about this. <laughs> oh, that's that's very true. This is, I think, what they would call the tease in the business. We're going to talk yeah. a little bit about NextCloud Federation later on in the show. Uh, but for those of you that don't listen to Linux Unplugged, if you don't, by the way, it's a great show. Brent and Chris, obviously... And uh, Wes are over there on Linux Unplugged. Um, But Brent has some news to share with the class. Yes, I do. For those who don't listen to the other shows, um, I've since joined the NextCloud team doing all sorts of fun stuff. It's been about, what, four weeks now, I think, gentlemen. And uh, I'm super excited. It feels just like I'm doing the stuff I was doing before, but just... But getting paid for it. That's always the trick. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was there in Berlin in March. And I kind of fell in love with the people who work there. Uh, such a nice team. And for me, that's like number one, which, you know, we got that at JB. It's like a big family. So, so I'm, I'm really kind of honored and I feel really like it's a special thing to be trying to make a difference with them. Huge, huge congratulations from me and my wife and our daughter too, because you're very dear, near and dear to all of us in this building. That's why it doesn't surprise me at all is because everywhere Brent goes, People try to keep him. Yeah. 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 You remember last summer when he didn't leave my house for like three months. Yeah. So are you surprised when he goes over to cover an event, they want to keep him? No, of course yeah, not. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what exactly are you going to be doing over there, dude? Yeah. I, you know, we had uh, some hopes of what I would do and there's other things that I've kind of just gravitated towards, which as you boys know, bugs, bug finding is uh, one of my things. And I, so I just can't help myself. Keen eye for detail, some might say. Some may say, Alex, you're always on my side. Thank you. The idea is for me to do marketing, uh, mostly with a focus on North America. So uh, it's a kind of a young field for NextCloud in North America. They have, as you might imagine, found a lot of success in Europe. Um, their governments and people in general are a little bit more privacy-minded and I guess a little more suspect of the big, massive U.S. corporations. But I think, you know, as we know, for the folks who really enjoy NextCloud, especially in home labs, and uh, there's a lot of people who love this stuff. And so I I think there's a way to bring that to uh, North America in a way that will really make a difference. And some of the stuff that you and I have been talking about off air privately, too. I I know that just it's a huge personal ambition of yours to work for an open source company particularly, mm. but one that sort of shares your personal goals. That's That doesn't come along too often that you get that chance. So uh, fantastic, fantastic news. Yeah, thank you. I, You know, it feels like actually such a privilege to be able to work in a place that I believe in. Uh, I know that not everybody is lucky enough to have that. So I am totally aware of that. So Help me not screw that one up. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it also means that there's an innate passion. You know, I've used NextCloud for five or six years on a da- on the daily basis. So it just is such a natural fit for me personally. We intend to tap into some of that wisdom later on in the show. Sounds good. I don't have all the answers, but I might have some. At least yet. 
I'm going to give you six months. I know, you better have them all. I know some people, though. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, that works. That works. Well, Brent, you can attest that uh, when you visit the studio or when you visit my RV, Lady Jubes, I've got these tablets that I have mounted to the wall. I have a crude one here at the studio. I've kind of gotten a little more serious about it in the RV. And these tablets run a Home Assistant dashboard 24-7. And there's a lot of ways you can implement this. I know some folks would probably go pick up a Fire tablet of a certain generation and they would put Lineage on there and they would strip it down. There's, I suppose you could probably do it with an iPad and kiosk mode somehow. I, I don't actually know. But my solution has always been strike during Prime Day pick up a, a the best, cheapest fire tablet I can pick up because these things, they don't get a lot of love. They don't, they don't get proper treatment. I don't want to invest a lot of money here. So I've picked up these fire tablets over the years for just stupid prices. Like I, I, I think I, I think I got the, the 10 inch version for like 40 bucks. It's so great. <laughs> you know, you just can't beat that. And for the longest time I was just using this app. I've talked about it before called wall panel. And it was just a nice little kiosk mode to bring up uh, the Home Assistant webpage. But Wallpanel is no longer developed, and it's gotten a little buggier with Home Assistant updates, and it started crashing on me. And so I realized, you know, let's let's improve this whole tablet experience. I could be doing more with these tablets. And I reviewed a couple of different options, including, like, just running the Home Assistant app on them directly, because that gives you some nice uh, sensor data and things like that. But I, I decided not to go that route. And the first thing I realized I needed to be able to do is I want to be able to share information, usernames, logins, details like that between these tablets. But I don't want these tablets logged into my Google account or anything else. Maybe my next cloud. But these tablets are so slow that I don't even want to add any other software on them. I mean, they're just painfully bad. So I checked out a new project that just had a brand new release this week called Microbin. And it is a self-hosted, lean, mean, really well done pastebin alternative. And it, it supports things like note expiration, which even though it's on my LAN, when I'm putting passwords up here, why not? Why not have them expire? Um, and you can have, a, have them burn after a certain amount of views. You can mark them private. You can secure them with a password. On the back end, it can store them in a database. You can store them in JSON. You can kind of pick that in the environment file. And it's so nice for just moving information around on my LAN, like passwords and not worrying about it. And I can pull it up in the web browser on the tablet, copy the information I need, paste it into the app I need. So you guys have got to check out Microbin, and it's stupid easy to set up, too. That is so smart. You know, you could, if you're in the Apple ecosystem, just rely on iCloud to sync your clipboard around the place. Yeah. but Yeah, or probably I, AirDrop if I was using an, an iPhone and a tablet, I could just AirDrop a something between them or whatever. This is such a nerd grade solution to copy and paste. <laughs> I absolutely love it and endorse it with the full Alex thumbs up. I'll put a demo if people want to check it out in the show notes. It's just nice to have your own local paste bin. So once I had that all set up, I went with the tried and true. You guys have known, you've heard of it before. It's called fully kiosk browser. We talked about it in episode 51. We've talked about it before just here and there on the show. I'm not the first person to tell you about this, but I've, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid right now. Uh, listener Jeff uses it and you can use the free mode and you can use fully kiosk to come up and like override the lock screen. It'll even do like a fake swipe gesture depending on the tablet OS. And you can have it do all kinds of neat sensor things like automatically wake the screen when the camera detects motion. And then you can just have it launch the home assistant app like listener Jeff does. Um, I wanted to go ahead and use the full feature set of fully kiosk browser. So I paid like eight bucks to unlock it for these tablets. <gasps> eight dollars. 
baller. I know. Wow. I know. I know. I'm not, I'm not even done there. I spent money on another app later, but <laughs> Foley Kiosk is slick. I know I'm not going to rehash it here, but the ability to have um, some real nice, precise controls over how bright to make the screen, when to turn the screen off at a certain darkness level so the screen just automatically turns off. And then if you pay for it, you also get some sensors and some data it'll send to an integration and home assistant. So now I get like the battery level and I can turn the screens off with my nighttime routines. The screens all turn off now automatically and that type of stuff. It's just hit me. I have been using in my house the Google um, home hub display things. There's photo frames and in the kitchen as a timer for the last several years. I could totally do this exact use case without Google being involved using fully kiosk. Why don't I do that? <laughs> you, you absolutely can. Why did that take me so long to connect that peanut butter with that chocolate? Good Lord. I decided I went, I was thinking exactly like you. And so I decided to also throw into the mix photo F O T O O. And I can't find a decent website for it, but it is in the play store and it is in the Amazon app store. It is not an F droid. I think you can find the APK. This also um, has some basic slideshow functionality that's kind of Google Home-like, Google Home Hub-like. If you unlock it for like seven bucks or whatever it is, then it'll do really neat things like face detection, and it'll do the slide based on face detection. It'll also work off of local resources. So I went ahead and I set up a Samba share just so I could point this at some photos. How does it do the face <laughs> detection? I'm curious because I'm I'm obviously way behind the curve and out of touch. Like I'm not cooling down with the kids like you are, Chris. Uh, this looks like it's genuinely just going to make any old tablet into Google Home Hub. Yep, and you can you can put the time on there and the weather and like you know a nice little corner like like the Home Hub does. It's not detecting individual people. It's just detecting facial structure. And so it's panning the picture to optimize for faces. And then you you point it at a folder. Okay. So how do you do the thing where you have, uh, you know, one of the things I like about the Google frames is, and yes, I still use Google Photos. I'm sorry, audience, to let you down. Um, uh, it automatically, you know, if I take a picture of Ella or, you know, I upload some photos to my um google whatever as you know from the racetrack last weekend it'll automatically create like a highlights album with zero interaction from me and that's one of my favorite features of the google stuff yeah so for that i'm going to rely on i'm going to rely on image and i'm actually pointing it at the image folder structure Ah. and so i'm going to play around with that because image will do some highlights but i don't know fully how to solve that yet because i do like that kind of auto composition of, hey, you did this thing where you took a bunch of pictures and movies at this location with these faces in it. So we made this movie for you. They're generally kind of crap, but they're still nice. Right. Um, so image, I think we'll get there. Yeah. I wonder if because the next cloud, which I also use to back up my photos as well, has an add to favorites option. Yes. I wonder if you could do some magic where anything that you manually add. I know it's manual. Right. Anything you add to favorites automatically ends up in a certain directory and therefore ends up on the on the frame maybe that's what i was thinking too so i kind of done something similar by with image on the iphone i only upload my favorites so that's by default what a lot of them are just my favorites anyways my pixel it uploads all of them but those are all usually pretty decent pictures too so i've kind of solved for it by favoriting 
on the phone first, only uploading those to image and then using that folder structure on the tablets. 4D chess, Chris, you're, you know, five moves ahead over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's all nice, right? I mean, I had to spend eight bucks for, for uh, fully kiosk and I had to spend like another seven bucks for photo or whatever photo. Uh, but all together now it's, I think it's better functionality than the home hubs because it's all on the land. And I, you know, so I can be disconnected and the home hubs. They just have like this stupid, I lost my internet screen whenever I'm off grid. That's how I know I've actually got a problem with my internet right. most of the time. <laughs> I look down and I go, God damn it, what now? That's true. That is that is helpful. So the Amazon Fire tablets are what you've been using. Obviously, it was Prime Day this week. Uh, did you get anything interesting, home lab, self-hosted, relating besides tablets? Yeah, I decided to pick up, and I haven't got these yet, but I decided to pick up their Tuya USB smart switches. So they, they give you a smart switch for a USB plug. And I'm going to plug the tablets into those. And then when the sensor, because the sensor always tells me the battery level, when it's like at 85%, I'll turn the switches off. And when it's down to like 40%, I'll turn the switches on. And that's how I'll manage the batteries in these tablets. I could do it a dozen different ways, including apps on the device probably, but I wanted to experiment with a USB smart plug. So we'll see. Okay, but I, I have a curiosity here because I have some experience with your current you know, tablet on the wall kind of experience. And those are just plugged in a hundred percent of the time. So why are you caring about the battery? Well, I want them to last right now that I put all this effort into it and I got them all configured the <laughs> yeah. way I like, and they're Fair running enough. real good. I'm like, yeah, I don't really want these to die and they're sealed up. And I could just see one day the battery, like, you know, expanding in the mount or something. So <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You need yeah. a Nix OS equivalent for Android, a deterministic photo frame. Ooh, configuration now you're talking yeah okay <laughs> maybe one day <laughs> well i did see some interesting deals around hard drives there was a what was it an 18 i think 18 terabyte hard drive for about 240 dollars all right yesterday uh it got up this morning unfortunately um so yeah hard drive prices are something i think i'll probably pick a couple up around black friday as is my annual tradition uh, I looked at my free space and I've still got like 55% free space, but I am thinking of consolidating the number of media drives I have down a bit. Some of the other stuff that caught my attention was SSDs at the moment are just dirt stinking cheap. You can get uh, one terabyte, not a QLC, whatever the other one's called, for like... $80, $70, something stupid. Well, Even right. less if you're prepared to go for QLC, which is the slower version with the small cache. So, uh, you know, you could potentially these days build an SSD NAS for not ridiculous money anymore. And so you see it starting to see some of these videos come through on YouTube, the Acer store, all flash NAS. I think uh, Ray Dowell and Jeff Geerling did videos on it. It kind of looks like a PlayStation 4 kind of thing uh, and it's got like six m.2 slots in it um but i'm thinking behind me i've got an Ncase m1 that used to be my primary desktop uh, computer before graphics cards just got gargantuan in size and that's currently just my um proxmox test system i've got you know a ssd in it maybe and no gpu right now but i'm thinking because that, that motherboard, I think, has six SATA ports, maybe, which maybe four for mini-ITX. I can't remember. But it's got a PCIe slot. So I'm thinking maybe if I throw a 10-gig NIC in there with the fiber upgrade I did a few months ago and 
next time these sales come around, I'm thinking I could build a, you know, four terabyte based um, flash NAS, you know, some increment, some multiple of four terabytes, maybe eight or 12 or something for not a ridiculous amount of money and then just have a really blazing fast video photo editing system. I don't know. That's, that's kind of where my mind's going with these prices. Alex, I think at a certain point, you're going to be the slow part of all of this. Well, some might argue that's already the case, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I do wonder for your annual, you know, buy a hard drive holiday. Do you think there will be a point maybe in a couple of years where you actually don't need new hard drives? What will you do then? Well, I still have my UK server, uh, which if I just have a little look at look at it, you know, there are hard drives in there that I bought eight, nine yeah. years ago. Because mm. you got to life cycle them. So you're always going to need new drives. I need yeah. somebody near Norwich in the UK to reach out to me. I might, I might reach out to Gary from uh, Joe's network because I know he lives just a few miles from where that server physically is. Uh, in England and say, hey, if I send a couple of hard drives back with a relative on a plane, could you just go throw them in this box for me? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, that is my primary backup offsite server because I've got, it's running uh, ZFS mirrors and all the rest of it. But it's got six and eight terabyte hard drives in it that are, some of them will be getting up there in terms of age. So mm -hmm. no, yeah, I don't I think so. But what I, what I do see as being a real trend over the next few years is as hard drive density uh, uh, sizes go up the the slot density is going to increase and is increasing already dramatically you know one slot used to be six terabytes it's already 16 terabytes uh, you know the nice 200 ish sweet sweet spot um so i think there will be less hard drives but they'll be a lot bigger which is obviously good for energy usage and, and all the rest of it it does mean that, though that when one of them goes pop mm -hmm. it's a bigger event so you know it's always a trade-off isn't it yeah, I think that's, I'm starting to see that now, right? My home NAS is uh, four terabytes of storage and it's all SSD. And I, I could definitely see one day expanding my home NAS to 12 terabytes of solid state. But it's, if you don't, if you don't have everything on that one box for a, for a, for a secondary system, it's already pretty achievable to go all solid state. For the big storage system here at the studio, it's all old spinning rust. And my experience to answer your question there, Brent, is that my media collection is probably always going to grow. About three months ago, I was thinking to myself, all right, I'm going to start tidying this up. And I deleted about 500, eh, about 400 gigs worth of media. I felt pretty good about that. And I thought, I'm going to keep that train rolling. And then, you know, like I mentioned before on the show, Paramount Plus started pulling seasons and entire series of Star Trek off. And then uh, other shows have been pulled off streaming. And I thought, you know, maybe I, Maybe I don't want to start cleaning this up. Maybe I want to keep this stuff because it's not actually always going to be available to me. And I've either spent good money on it or time and, you know, investment. So it's to me, I think it's likely that that's always going to continue to grow. My hope is, is that my my content consumption is moderate enough that storage outpaces it. But <laughs> it's no promises the there. right? Sometimes you got to go clean house, too. I mean, the entire back catalog of The Simpsons is like. Four, five hundred gig. Oh, yeah. You only need a handful of those shows, and those SSDs are full up. Yeah, yeah. Spinning rust is going to make a lot of sense for a long time for that stuff. Yep. Well, I wonder if you guys will move to tape soon. <laughs> I've thought about it. I've thought about it. 
linode.com slash SSH. Head on over there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account. It's a great way to support the show. And you can check out the exciting news. Linode's now part of Akamai. All the developer-friendly tools like their cloud manager that's just so well-built, the API that's documented and has so many libraries ready to go, the CLI tool that I use to take snapshots or upload to S3 object-compatible storage, like all that stuff that I use to deploy or the tools you've used to deploy and scale in the cloud, they're all still available. But now they're combined with Akamai's power and global reach, and they're expanding their services to offer more cloud computing resources and tools while still giving you that reliable, affordable, and scalable solution for your business or your project or yourself, any size. And part of Akamai's global network of offerings, data centers are expanding. They're going to give you more access to even more resources, more compute. You can be able to grow your project or your business or your hobby, serve your customers, your clients, your friends. So don't wait. Head on over to Linode right now. It's linode.com slash SSH, which is now Akamai. Go there to learn about Linode now Akamai, and how they can help scale your applications from the cloud to the edge. And I can tell you, we've been using Linode for years to host the JB infrastructure, anything that's public-facing. And we've been able to incrementally increase the size of our rigs or decrease depending on the application and community needs. It's been really smooth. And I gave them a full recommendation, so go grab that $100 and kick the tires for yourself and see. Head over to linode.com slash SSH. Now, following on from our conversation about hard drives and Black Friday slash Amazon Prime Day deals, Brent and I were talking with listener Jeff last evening about his wants and desires for his new Nextcloud build. And we were talking about local mirrors versus remote mirrors and replication and all that kind of stuff. And Brent just dropped in the chat like super casual as if everybody knows that this is possible <laughs> i sure as heck did not know it was possible so why don't you just federate your next cloud and have certain files in one location and others in another spot and tell us all about the federation brent you know alex i think i i might have actually taught you something here this doesn't happen you sure uh, too often yeah. <laughs> usually it's the <laughs> other way you're teaching me a bunch of stuff yeah, this um, federation concept is something I learned when I first learned about Nextcloud, which is like six years ago or so. And back then, you know, federation wasn't the cool, hip, new thing that it is today. You know, we've got, I don't know, so federated everything these days, it seems like, which I think is good. Um, but the Nextcloud federation is interesting. I've used it a little bit uh, by having two Nextcloud servers just in a kind of a little bit of a different situation. One I was using for my photography business that was public facing uh, in a way that the my main Nextcloud server, which dealt with all my personal data, just I didn't kind of want that out in the same kind of way. So having two is feasible. And the neat thing is that you can federate them. And the process is fairly straightforward. And it's basically just a administrator sanctioned link between the two. And what that allows you to do is to look up users from either server, uh, so from one to the other, and allows you to do things like file sharing between them and doing, you know, if you do use talk to do meetings and stuff like that, you can use that as well between the two servers. So it almost becomes quasi one server. Uh, and so for home lab users, and in Jeff's instance, we thought of it, uh, I say we, Alex, I'll throw you in there. We thought of it because uh, 
he he kind of wanted to solve a similar problem. He wanted quite a public facing server, you know, to share files and things with family, uh, but really wanted one on the land to be super speedy for himself with all of the data that he cares about at home and doesn't necessarily want that stuff on the internet, for instance. Uh, I think in his particular case, there are a few other extra bits we will need to sort of solve for him. But um, but that federation is a nice way that, you know, he can log into one server for the most part, but still kind of gain access to that remote server as well if he needs to. So it's pretty slick, I got to say, and uh, worth investigating, Alex. You, you got to spin up a server just to just to play around. Yeah. So a use case I can think of that would be a perfect for this kind of thing is on occasion, you know, you need to share legal documents with a lawyer or, you know, somebody that is outside of your network for, for whatever reason. And, you know, maybe sharing via tail scale isn't an option or giving them a VPN access. You know, if you don't want to expose that next cloud to the internet locally, let's say it's, you know, in, in your house, would it be possible to have, you know, a specific directory and say, right, in here is, you know, like my marriage certificate, my birth certificate, all the stuff that you need to solve this particular problem, Mr. Solicitor, and then just federate just those documents for a certain time period to a Nextcloud hosted on a Linode or something? Yeah, I think that's fairly plausible, Alex. I, I'm assuming you're saying that the, you know, your home server isn't necessarily public facing all the time. You access it probably through Tailscale, I would imagine. 100% of the time it is not anymore. That is a good <laughs> it choice. It used to be. It used to be. In fact, when I emigrated, uh, there was quite a lot of situations where I was sharing documents, particularly for Catherine's green card application across the, across the ocean. You know, I was scanning, you know, pay stubs and all that kind of stuff over here sending it back across via email and i was always like oh that just feels really dirty uh, i'd much rather give a passworded uh link to somebody that expires in 72 hours or whatever it is you know uh you'd have to have each next cloud server be able to see each other so you'd need to have tail scale installed say on the vps as well that's fine i can do that yeah then, then it, because the VPS is still a trusted endpoint, as far as I'm concerned. As, so it's just like sharing a folder. Uh, there's not like a built-in, you know, auto destroy that share in a certain amount of time. But it's like the next cloud. Now you would just go in there and say unshare. How does the replication piece work? Do we do we know if there's much of a delay? Oh, I, uh, you know, I had like the cheapest servers that you can possibly host these things on, and there was a very reasonable delay. Like, I don't know. 10, 20, 30 seconds, something like that. So I think fairly performant, you know, I, I think we three would agree that Nextcloud is not the most performant server out there and it's doing a lot of stuff, but it's, I think, really, really reasonable in this use case. You can send expiring links, Alex. So you could send a link over email and you could say that link expires, you know, X amount of time. If they clicked it, I don't think you can set expiration on how long the share lasts, but you could set an expiration on how long the link to get to the share is valid. That sounds like it's going to solve a, a really interesting use case for me. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but I was, it might have been Cheese, Cheese Bacon, longtime friend of the show. I sent him a link to my personal Nextcloud and he was like, dude, have you got anything, you know, really personal in this Nextcloud? He goes, you are uh, bat crazy if you expose that to the internet. And I'm <laughs> like, 
You're probably right there, dude, actually. Yeah, yeah. Things like my social and yeah, all. Maybe, like, yeah. Although the JB, the JB Next Cloud, the one that we use for production by, necess- by necessity because we work with guests and whatnot is public. We just keep it up to date, you know, and it we haven't really had any issues. Patch your S. <laughs> we have a NextCloud instance that runs on the studio land. And we have a NextCloud instance that runs on my homeland. Those are not on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're in a really neat time, you know, with, with solutions like Tailscale and just mesh networks and such that you, you really don't need to expose it in the same way as you did even, what, five years ago? Maybe less, maybe a year or two. Yeah, so I think even five years ago, uh, this was a very different problem to solve. But these days, uh, like you can keep things very private and just expose exactly the bits you want. I think in that lawyer case you were talking about of sharing super, super sensitive documents, we learned about three months ago when I was in Berlin that uh, there's a new end-to-end encryption feature as well. I haven't tried it myself. It would be worth testing. Maybe you and I can do some testing together. And I think it just adds even an extra layer of, you know, encryption if you really need that stuff. You know, you can encrypt the files at rest on your server, but this, you know, going from client to client encrypted is actually an interesting tool to play with as well if if that matters to you. Yeah, it is. Because a lot of times people that I'm sending those sorts of documents to are not exactly what you would call tech literate sophisticated yeah i mean if you want to know a very specific area of real estate law they're probably the world expert on it but uh when it comes to end-to-end encryption from a next cloud they they have no idea so there's we should do some testing and report back well alex definitely wasn't on twitter when he noticed that we got some new goodies in docker compose 2.20 hey actually i was not on twitter some of our listeners posted it in the Discord, which then okay. took me to Twitter via the back door. So <laughs> technically, it's not my fault, okay? I'm not actually doom scrolling on Twitter anymore. Oh, the uh, the social media apocalypse is, is a hard habit to kick. I still find myself reaching for my phone and going to where Apollo used to be and then going, oh, yeah. But my wife has said on more than one occasion... You're more present than you were, so I think <laughs> that's probably a good probably thing. Spent, <laughs> I suspect I probably spent a lot more time than I care to admit. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about Docker Compose <laughs> two point twenty goodies. They announced uh, recently in the latest release of Docker Compose version two point twenty, we introduced the new include keyword, and this allows you to use an existing Compose configuration as part of your Compose stack. Now, this is potentially incredibly exciting because it means you could have one big master Docker Compose file in, let's say, your home directory, write some aliases against that one file to stop all containers all at once, and then change into the directory for, say, your media stack or your monitoring stack or your, I don't know, Nextcloud administration stack or whatever it might be and have granular control over those sub-elements that you've then included in the master compose file. Now, they're also looking at adding um, this feature to include files via a URL. Now, tell me that isn't just as bad as pseudo pipe to bash. I'll I'll wait. (laughs) But uh, what an exciting set of features. Yeah, so the include thing feels like it could have big ramifications on how people structure uh, their compose files, like you said, you could you could really like the the first my first thought, but I know there's going to be a million. But my first thought was, 
one master Docker compose that all like some stuff is always the same across all my containers. Like if the time zone or whatever it might be, like there's so many things that are the same actually. And, and, and I know that because I just go copy pasta from the previous compose when I'm setting up the new compose. Right. So <laughs> yep. how great would it be just to have an include line and be able to include some of those, you know, edge cases in that file. It's, uh, when I, when I saw this land, my first thought was, well, what took so long? Why, why just now? That was my exact reaction or just now. I mean, that's always the mark of a great feature, isn't it? Is when, when it arrives, you go, oh, that's the way it should have always worked. You know, Alex, I, I've seen you, you've given me tours of like your Ansible setup and some of this kind of structuring sounds very familiar in, in what you've done with Ansible, for instance. It's somewhat different. My uh, Ansible spits out a giant Docker Compose file that I manage in VS Code on my local system. I run a command which then spits out the YAML file on the remote target systems, plural. In that way, I can solve the problem that Chris articulated of having variables that are the same across multiple containers, be it a file path, be it a traffic label, for example. It's often the same with one minor difference across multiple containers, the downside of my approach is I end up with a single giant Docker Compose file with 30 plus containers in it. I've grown accustomed to managing that over the years. Um, this Docker Compose generator I wrote knocking on the door six years ago now, and I've used it pretty much every day since. So it solves my use case incredibly well and is by this point quite well refined. But I'm not you know, I'm not averse to the idea that people can add new features to Compose upstream because I'm hanging out on Docker Compose 1.29.2, I think, which is no longer supported. And Docker Compose is moving forward and they're going to add these new features. And I've been waiting for a reason to upgrade and to retool around certain things. And something like this might finally be the push that I need because I've always had in the back of my mind with that giant output that it wasn't really optimal. I mean, I've got I've got aliases that do a lot of the heavy lifting for me. I can still refer to specific containers by names. I can do profiles and tags and all sorts of silliness to to kind of replicate a lot of this this functionality. But with regards to you know vendor supported stuff, it's almost always going to be better than any jank that I can write. Yeah, well, Alex, it sounds to me like you were sort of implementing this include in your own way, just sort of six years prior. In my own way, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But it, this is fundamentally different because it allows you... So the, the way in which Compose uh, scopes different variables and different stacks and things like that is done on a per-directory basis. Uh, I think it might even be a per-file basis, but certainly how I know uh, for sure I've used it in the past is, is per-directory. And so if you change between, let's say, the media stack directory that has stuff like Plex or Jellyfin and Radar and all that kind of crap in it, that potentially has a completely different set of variables, you know, different environment variables, API keys, volumes, perhaps, uh, all that kind of stuff from your monitoring stack, which, you know, Grafana and Prometheus and all that kind of stuff. There may well be fundamental differences between the two and the issue with having a single f massive file is I can refer to Docker Compose stop Prometheus. I can't do Docker Compose stop monitoring and just have everything in that stack automatically stop all at once. Whereas if I change into that directory where all the monitoring Compose files live, 
then it becomes a lot more scoped and a lot more specific to that specific uh, use case. Yeah, I've done the kind of manual thing of like, I've got a Docker Compose file that's all my media stack, and I got a Docker Compose file that's all the Nextcloud stack, and I got a Docker Compose file that's all of the monitoring stack, and it's just like, yeah, it's, you know, it's because I didn't have this feature, basically, that I built it that way. Um, I do think that adding a file via URL is going to be huge for people that are new. I, I don't know. I'm trying to visualize how I would use that right now myself, and nothing really comes to mind, but I'm sure... I'm going to see some setup script once I add this feature down, which isn't in yet. But once I add this feature down the road, I'm see, I'm sure I'll see some script that you run something and it just pulls down the compose file for you and just sets it all up. And it's just going to be one even, even more copy pasta step easier. I guess I, I guess that's a good thing. Pseudo pipe to bash. Well, Chris, this reminds me now that you're saying that it reminds me quite a bit of how, uh, you can have nested Nix OS configurations. Right, right. And oh, we've seen... here we go on the Nix crazy <laughs> Atta boy, Atta we boy, go. Brent. He didn't even pay <laughs> me this time. <laughs> yeah. I think we saw a new uh, Flake feature where you can pull in URLs as well. So it sounds like some of these projects are going in the same direction. I mean, people are probably asking for this kind of functionality. It is really nice. It is. Well, in terms of software development, it's a pretty standard pattern to be able to include different libraries from other... other... Right, or even... Even like things like Apache config, right? I mean, I'm just like going way back, like yeah. or Samba. You yeah, could yeah, include yeah. files. Yeah, so <laughs> it just took them a while. <laughs> Tailscale.com/slash/self-hosted. What if I told you that every now and then new technologies come along that just totally change your game, like high-speed internet, SSD hard drives, multi-core CPUs, file syncing, and now Tailscale. VPNs have been so kludgy, and especially if you're in a business where you have to run a VPN server and manage it for multiple users, it's just never worked very well. Tailscale blows all of that out of the water and improves upon the security model. It's a simple, secure network for a team of any size, and it's built on top of WireGuard. It uses a zero-config setup. You, put, you pop it on your machine, in a couple of minutes you're going to be online, and you're going to be in a mesh-flat network. It's perfect for those of us who self-host because you can put all your services behind Tailscale and you can put the client on your phone and on your desktop and whatever other machine you might need. And you can get to all your resources, even devices like my solar charge monitor that I can't install Tailscale on. I can use subnet routing and I can still get to the built-in little web page that lets me see how my solar panels are doing and stuff. It's so flexible. And they're integrating with different tools like VS Code or they got Docker plugins or, you know, whatever you want to call it to... Be able to just plug Tailscale into your different applications like VM infrastructures and application level. And like I've got one for, for Home Assistant. It's just so great. So even on my Home Assistant Yellow, I can put it on Tailscale. You can quickly and easily create a mesh network between your machines protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. That's it right there. Machines talk directly to each other so you can leave Tailscale running all the time. And it's not routing all your traffic over the Tailscale network or the Tailnet as they call it. It's just the traffic intended for your tailnet systems. And it's really slick. And it works so great. And I leave it running 24-7 on my mobile devices. Doesn't even touch my battery. Just does a super great job. So go try it out. And you can get it for free for up to 100 devices. That's not a limited time thing. That's what you get when you go to tailscale.com slash self-host. You get up to 100 devices and unlimited subnets now. Great deal. Game-changing technology. And a super way to support the show tailscale.com slash self-hosted. We had a really handy app. Now, I know Plex is no longer our, our daily driver, 
Um, but I do actually do still have one Plex server up, and I think you do too, Alex. And so Plex dupe finder may be very handy. I checked. I'm surprised I didn't see this in the show notes before because I think I've seen this, but it's a Python script that, as you probably guessed from the name, goes through TV episodes and movies in your Plex library. And what I like about it is it, well, by default, remove the duplicates that are like the lowest rated versions of the file. Um, so you have scoring. You can do like something that's higher bit rate. You can rate higher or something like that. And then it will prune those ones. And I think... I don't know how many duplicates I have, probably not a lot, but I definitely have some movies where I have multiple copies of the movie for whatever reason. And uh, this could actually be nice to go through and clean some of that up. You know, what often happens is before I take a trip, because Plex Downloads is so badly broken, I will create a separate folder with the media that I want in it and just duplicate that media for, for whatever reason. And then I'll throw it through Handbrake and let it encode uh, to a smaller version. And so they end up with two or three copies sometimes of an entire TV show or set of movies. Uh, and then obviously, because uh, I'm me, I forget to clean it up. So I'm actually going to run this after the show. Yeah, there you go. You know, I, not to Plex Bash, because happy user for many years, I just happen to be preferring Jellyfin these days. But... You know how annoying it is that they force that login to use the app and whatnot. So the wife had a sleepover as she's doing with her friend, uh, a neighbor, and um, they wanted to watch a movie from the Plex library that we still have. And so she tries to open up the app on her phone, which has worked a hundred times in the past. And this time, for whatever reason, once she logs in, the app never loads. She tries switching Wi-Fi networks. She tries switching LTE, force closing the app. She can never get the app to sign in. And all she wants to do is just play the video and then airplay it to the television, right? And if she had Jellyfin, we wouldn't have that problem because there'd be no cloud service to log into. I don't know why she couldn't log in, but it's really, so she comes over and, you know, it's, I thought, I thought it was going to be real easy for her. I thought she wouldn't even have to talk to me. It would all be really just simple. No, no, no barriers, easy spousal approval. And it didn't work. And so I had to give her one of my devices, which just signed right in for whatever reason. And then she went over there and used one of my devices to watch the movie. Yeah, that is the trouble with, with anything cloud-connected, is it can just fail for reasons beyond your control. Beyond my control, beyond Plex's control, it could have been you know something in between. And neither party has anything we can do about it. We just don't get to use it that day. And it happens to be while a friend's over, while they're visiting, you know, whatever. It's like, that's just the worst. Reminds me as a teenager, every time I tried to show a parent some cool tech thing. Yes. Obviously... <laughs> Back in the, the noughties, tech was not reliable. Uh, you go, hey, dad, look at this cool thing. And then inevitably you show him the thing and it doesn't work. And he goes, uh-huh. And it's just the worst feeling because you're like, all your excitement gets sucked out of you in that moment. I bet some listeners have been there too, where you're like, you're really proud of like your media library. It's well organized and you go to show it. And for whatever reason, the server's offline or something doesn't work. And it's, it's so crushing. And that was... It was similar to that because I thought, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. It'll all just work. The obsidian love is still strong over here. We've been accused in uh, some listener feedback of becoming obsidian shills. I know they're joking because they tell us they're joking. Technically, <laughs> they called us chills. They said we <laughs> were <laughs> chilling obsidian. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so. with, you know, in light of the recent Evernote news this week of them laying off a bunch of their staff. Uh, the time is right for a, you know some some new kid on the block to come along, and you, you found a tool that frees your notes from Evernote just at the right time. 
because I don't know if you saw this, but Evernote just did massive layoffs and they're moving the company headquarters and it's a lot of, lot of change, new ownership over to Evernote, bad stuff. And the Obsidian folks, I'm sure completely unrelated, made an announcement on their blog on July 12th that uh, they are releasing an open source converter for Obsidian. And the idea is you can take data from a previous app and import it into Obsidian. And they're starting with a conversion support for .enex files, which are Evernote files. And then they write on their blog that they're going to add file format support for Notion, Apple Notes, and other formats, including folders that are just full of HTML files. Oh, great. Yeah. Let's move from Evernote to Notion real quick and just repeat the same problem in 10 years time, shall we? Good Lord, people. So I think, you know, uh, starting with an Evernote importer is a good idea. I think Apple Notes would be awesome, too, because uh, that's been a really handy app for my wife over the years to be able to pull that into Obsidian. I'm really liking it so far. It's not perfect for me, but I've cha- I'm changing my note style a little bit and I'm adapting. And I really like the multiple library support because I've got a library that's just for like really technical stuff that I'm researching. That's just my wife doesn't need to bother with. And I've got a shared library between us. And that part's been really great. We did have another suggestion from a listener that we should check out LogSec, uh, L-O-G-S-E-Q. And I know that you guys did a full breakdown of LogSec with Wes on Linux Unplugged recently. Yeah, he likes that. He likes, I think he tells me it's pronounced LogSeq too. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Must be um, French. I think it, I think it's based on like, you know, it's some developer term, you know, Wes, right? That guy, the, he loves it. And I know there, it does have a following out there in the audience. So you might be attracted to it. LogSeq, you can check that out. I think it's more just a difference in how to approach the way the data is structured is, is the big difference between the two. Oh, and one of them's fully open source, you know, small detail. Those things. True. Those things. Speaking of projects, uh, listener Alper, who raised a bit of a stink on Reddit, sends along his project that's currently named crackpipe.de. Uh, he says, well, the name attracted a lot of drama, which has led to debates, and currently we're in the process of renaming it. But it's uh, it's kind of a neat idea. It's, it's, a, it's like a, a game library, right? Um, that he's created that you can kind of share with friends and family. Crackpipe's kind of a fun name too. Crack, crackpipe.de. It's memorable, that's for sure. It is a fun. It's it is a fun name, but it, you know I can see why certain people would take issue with it. We almost didn't cover it because of the name. I will just say that. Yeah. But they're changing the name. But it looks like a really interesting project, and uh, they are going to be changing the name moving forward. So don't know what though. Who knows? Hopefully not like heroin needle or something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe go a different direction hey you know? brent you're in marketing you should come up with a name <laughs> okay give me a week i'll come up with something okay so we talked a little bit about monitoring ken emailed into the show at selfhosted.show slash contact said what do you guys recommend for linux host monitoring i'm using ubuntu i'm running everything in containers i got 28 terabytes of space in a merger fs pool i want to be alerted if a drive drops or if maybe there's a smart error you have any good recommendations Yes, I do. Uh, Smart D, Smart Demon. Uh, That has pretty much all of the monitoring and logging and alerting features for hard drive specific stuff in it that you're ever going to need. So using that daemon, um, you can monitor the self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology, Smart, system that is built into almost every hard drive made in the last 20 years or so. 
SmartD can be configured to send email warnings if problems are detected. And depending on the type of problem, you can then also configure it to run further tests on the drive before you even get there. Yeah. SmartD is great. You can, if you really want to get crazy too, you can, if you have SmartD installed, you could then install NetData on top of that. And NetData will give you uh, a SmartD dashboard where you can review things and see like errors in a graph and whatnot. And NetData could be a way to go too. As always, there are multiple options when it comes to logging and monitoring and alerting. And if, if we didn't cover your favorite one, you know, let us know. Uh, I think Prometheus would be another good option, but I'm sure there are others. Now, Dimitri wants us to kind of get specific on our, on our storage setups, I guess. He says, the reason for the question is that I'm not very knowledgeable myself, and I've set up a Proxmox with a true NAS as a VM. Okay. A Docker VM and a Home Assistant VM running on there. I can't complain about anything, but I struggle to keep the configs for Synthing and Jellyfin intact if I try to destroy the Docker container and build a new one because their permissions are on TrueNAS and I rebuild the Docker containers directly on TrueNAS. It's bringing up an issue all this time as well. Hence, I'm looking for a bare metal Unraid to get rid of the hustle. I'd like to hear your thoughts on storage solutions for the average home user. Well, that sounds like a real pain in the neck. The the short version would be for me just to point you at perfectmediaserver.com and call it good. But that wouldn't make for a very interesting answer in the podcast. So I found a lot of benefit from keeping things simple. When I first wrote Perfect Media Server, I used to run the actual media server portion in a virtual machine on top of ESXi, believe it or not. I discovered Intel QuickSync, and that precipitated a move for me to move all of my media containers, in fact, all of my containers, onto the bare metal host running Proxmox so that the Plex and Jellyfin uh, containers could take advantage of the um, Intel QuickSync technology. I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago now, I looked into something called Intel GVTG, which is virtual slicing up of the Intel iGPU. Um, but the performance of that was just horrible and it was unreliable. And I've got blog posts about it, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Uh, it just wasn't a good time. And so to answer your question, you know, every time you introduce a new layer, you know, in your case, TrueNAS is a VM, and then you've got a Docker VM as well. You've essentially got two completely separate systems joined through. So you, you kind of got a hairpin out of one and into another Anytime you want to access a file, so there's going to be some extra latency there. Unless you have a really good reason for separating the application server, which is what I'm assuming your Docker VM is in this case, from the storage server, which is what I'm assuming the TrueNAS VM is in this case, you might be better served just from having a simple ZFS mirror on the Proxmox host itself and then creating data sets for each container and using those as the app data you know, volumes for each container, just as a directory mount through the volumes uh, stanza in the compose files. Yeah, I like that a lot. It seems too that it may be worth, Dimitri, you spending some time just reading through the Docker documentation as well, because I think you're struggling a little bit by fighting the tooling here because you've got so well abstracted now that things are happening automatically for you and it sounds like permissions are getting messed up and whatnot. If you kind of get a handle on those primitives, um, you can either solve those problems manually or maybe you'll have a better understanding of why the user layer is making those changes. But I also will give a plug for Perfect Media Server. Just go give a read through that as well. I should probably update it a little bit. I still get lots of questions about, because I, I don't think I've updated it since I did the whole Proxmox switch, probably 18 months ago now. 
So I explain that to a lot of people in the Discord uh, seemingly every month. So I should probably just write it down on the website and just <laughs> just be done with it. But um, with Proxmox 8 coming out last week uh, or last month, uh, it feels like probably a good time to revisit some of that stuff and uh, just, you know, spruce up the website a little bit. But um, to answer a question that you didn't ask, Dimitri, because I get asked it by lots of other people, uh, yes, it is still relevant to use MergerFS for your media and to use Docker for all of your apps. And no, nothing else new and exciting has really come along in that space uh, in, in that time. So I get lots of questions asking me why I haven't updated the website. You know, one is motivation, I'll just be honest. But the second one is that it just works. Like we found the tech stack that does the job. And so there's no need to rewrite the documentation because it just works yeah you want it to last a few years you want that to hold up and i think it's showing that it has well if i if i look at perfect media server it started the first post was february 2016 so here we are in uh, july 23 you know that's i'd say it's pretty well tested by now 45homelab.com big strong fast storage servers with affordable high performance high capacity enterprise storage solutions for all industries and really all data size requirements. I'm talking professional grade solutions that are ideal for a business or let's be real, your home lab. So visit 45drives.com to learn how new enterprise and 45 drives are doing things differently. You might remember they came on episode 98 of the self-hosted podcast. And after we chatted with them for a bit and got a sense of what they're about and their mission and the way they see the storage market, and their vision for future products, it really all clicked with us, kept chatting, and they also listened to your feedback from that episode. And so I think you're really going to like what they got cooking up over at 45homelab.com. It's going to be up your alley because they base some of it on the self-hosted podcast feedback. So go check that out, 45homelab.com as well. I'll tell you what, though. When I'm looking at something I'm going to be racking and stacking or putting in production for years, there's a few things that check boxes for me that I want to see. So I know this thing's really going to last. And 45 drives maintains an open design, which I think is great. Lots of people can look at that. And they have ongoing deep relationships with the open source community. So they're building things for the long term. And that that's a big one for me. And I think you guys out there, once you get a product, you're going to like the fact that they have a dedicated engineering team ready to help should you ever need it. So go learn how 45 Drives does things differently. You can visit 45drives.com to learn more. And of course, 45homelab.com to support the show. So the uh, 100th episode drew an awful lot of people out of the woodwork. We're still getting massive boosts in even over the last week. It's so nice. I love how people come out for the milestones. We couldn't fit all of them in the show, of course. We tried to pack a few extra in just to say thank you. And I tried to pick a few more of the first timers in here and stuff like that. But uh, we'll start with our baller booster this week, which is Advery 17 with 200,000 sats. Happy episode 100. I love this one from the start. You both have done an excellent job. Keep it up. Well, thank you, 17. You're a great booster. And uh, he used Podverse to send that in. It's nice, you know, when people like, I don't know, they get excited about the numbers. I know it's silly as humans. We get excited about the big round numbers and stuff. <laughs> but, you know, when the listener gets excited, I get excited. So that's great. Thank you, sir. When when do we get cake? I haven't got my Oh, you yet. missed the cake? Oh. 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 Sorry, Brent. It had gluten. Guys. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it also had beef in it. it was you beef. wouldn't have liked it anyway. Beef and gluten, so, yeah. you know. <laughs> My favorite. Beef uh, cake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mince meat. 
Pie. <laughs> Rotted Mood comes in with 50,000 sats from Castomatic. I'm running a bit behind on the episodes because life, but I wanted to say congrats on episode 100. Here's to 100 more. Yeah. You know what I think, guys? I think Rotted, I think he, even though he's behind, he like did the math, knew where we were at, and future boosted us. And he won't even hear this for a while. What a gentleman. What a gentleman. Thank you, sir. Yeah, that's impressive. Jard came in with 20,000 sets. First boost, long time listening to the Jupiter shows, and I love self-hosting as much as I can. Keep up the awesome work. I want to get you in there, Jard, since it is your first boost. Thank you, sir. I wonder, you know, you say long time listener. I want to know how long, right? Put your city in there. Why not? That way we can send Alex out to visit you. He's looking for places to go. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, I'll just agree to that. Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Tokopath comes in with 2,737 sets. It's his first boost. Been listening since episode 29. You see, he knows how to do it. Uh, I said it's a welcome relief <laughs> while commuting uh, from work uh, to the COVID wards. This one got me hooked, and now I listen to all the Jupiter shows. Since I listen to the back catalog, I need to remind you about that challenge for the self-hosted email 100th episode. Dang it, another person remembers, Alex. Uh-oh. Yeah, we talked about episode six. Here's all my fountain sets. Thanks for all the great content. Look forward to hearing you achieve deliverability. Oh. These listeners are impressive. I thought episode six would be long enough ago that people would forget. You know, this show has taught me one very important life lesson. The internet never forgets. <laughs> I almost want to do it, but I I also like, I have a tiny farm that I stupidly started and it consumes every free minute of my time. And I don't really know how I would set up a mail server right now, but then part of me wants to do it. Oh, that's what you suggested doing? Why would you both do that? Because we didn't think it would make it to 100. Oh, I don't know. I think, too, maybe like I had more time back then when I suggested the idea. And I was like, yeah. I, didn't do that. I didn't have a kid. I had unlimited time. Yeah. But you've both for years convinced me that was a terrible idea. It is, so it is I, a terrible idea. Okay. <laughs> that's yeah. the joke. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And it's six. Ooh. Run level six, 10,000 sats. Been listening for almost four years. I recently also bumped up my JB party membership to show some support. Absolutely love all the shows, and I finally managed to buy some sats. Will we get a show about self-hosting Noster as Chris talks more and more about it? I'm boosting from near Munich, Germany, by the way. Ooh. Keep it up. That is a perfect boost. The amount of time <laughs> listening, right? Also a party member and told us where they're from. Amazing. Now, if you are in Germany, uh, we didn't talk about this at the beginning of the show, but I do believe, Brent, you are going to be hosting another JB meetup at some point in Berlin soon. Yes. Details, of course, at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Yeah, when I was in Berlin last time, about three months ago, uh, we had such a great time. So this time being, you know, part of the new Nextcloud team, I have another excuse to go. And later this month, I will be in Berlin for about two weeks. We do have the intention of having a meetup July 22 at around 7 p.m. local time. Ignore meetup.com. They think everyone's on Pacific time because that's where our profile is. And they, I don't know why they didn't figure that out. But if you could RSVP, that would be amazing. Uh, if you're interested in going, we also have a matrix room dedicated to those who are in the Berlin area or traveling to come maybe spend some time with me and with other listeners. So that's in the Berlin Buds matrix group. And we'll have links to those in the show notes. I realize rereading in its sixes boost that uh, he's from Munich and Munich is an awfully long way from Berlin. Uh, 
even in Germany, even with the amazing <laughs> trains. But, um, you know, go see Brent. Have a good time. Have, make, make a weekend of it. He's closer than I will be, I say. <laughs> Sam Watson comes in with 3,000 sats. First boost ever. These are my earnings from Fountain Eye. I was introduced to self-hosted after Alex was a guest on the Home Assistant podcast. Another one. I know. It's crazy. From there, I found the rest of JB, and I've been listening ever since. The JB crew has given me the nudge I needed to build a larger self-hosted stack of my own, from Home Assistant on a Pi to now Proxmox on an Odroid H3. Oh, yeah. Running more things than I can keep track of and loving every minute of it. <laughs> You know what's weird about that episode is I'd literally just moved into this house. We I think it was within the first two or three weeks because I was recording off of a cheap IKEA table that I'd bought off someone on Facebook Marketplace because I hadn't even set my desk up yet. Uh, and those that know me know that my desk is life. Like it's where I spend most of my time. I, any house I ever move into, the desk is like one of the first things that gets erected. Uh, and we were talking. I was talking to Philip, uh, Phil, on the the podcast, and he's in Australia. And I, I think I had to get up at like five a.m. to record those episodes <laughs> or something stupid. It was unpleasant. So I just I have fun fun memories of those particular episodes of that podcast simply because of the fact it's wrapped up in the emotions of new house and all that stuff too. So thank you for boosting in. I love to hear where people come from. Yeah. As something as podcasts, we don't get any analytics really about who you are, what, you know, we know roughly what country you're in and we know roughly that you've done a download and that's about <laughs> it. Like you compare that to YouTube analytics where I can see the exact second where someone clicked off. We have no idea if you listen this far. So if you listen this far, boost in with a, a number that ends in seven. How about that? There you go. That'll be a good <laughs> little test to see how close they're listening. I love that he's using the Odroid too. I always fascinated in hearing use cases for that. So that's all we're going to be able to fit in the episode today. But thank you, everybody who did support episode 100. We just can't read all of them on air, but we have read them all. In fact, I shared them with the whole production team around self-hosted. So everybody on the team got to see your messages. And we're going to save those messages in our show doc for all time. So it is enshrined in the doc. We had uh, 18 total boosters, 24 boosts in total, earning 336,771 sats so thank you everybody he's not kidding in our internal chat i logged in to have a look and get the show notes link and i had to <laughs> scroll for at least a minute to get through all the boosts <laughs> it's great we really it's and there's such you know so many people with first time boosters or longtime listeners and all that stuff or whatnot so we really appreciate it particularly with the ad-based internet imploding we really appreciate you supporting independent media amen to that if you'd like to boost in get albi.com you grab that top it off either directly or like with the cash app that's how i do it and then head over to the podcastindex.org and just boost self-hosted right there. It's in the web, embedded once you have Albi set up. Or you can get a new podcast app, podcastapps.com. Fountain, Castomatic, and Podverse are the most popular ones in our audience. So as always, I wish to thank also not only the boosters, but all of our Jupiter Party and SRE subscribers who directly contribute to making the show possible. We do an ad-free feed for you with a post-show, and I think we're going to talk about other Prime Day shenanigans in the post-show today. Uh, you can go to selfhosted.show slash SRE for more details. And don't forget that Meetup page, meetup.com slash Broadcasting. And uh, if you want to get more Brent, of course, you can catch him on Linux Unplugged and uh, Office Hours, which has a brand new format. Go check it out. We're going to have one more of the regular format, officehours.hair. Now, I would normally at this point direct you to Twitter, but I have actually gone ahead and deleted all of all of the apps off my phone. So the, I, I have to log into the browser to to check those things now. So if you want to find me, I'm on the Discord at AlexKTZ. 
you can also go to alex.ktz.me. I've put together a new links page with all of my remaining social presences so you can find me all in one easy to digest package. I'll put my Noster key somehow. I don't know how to do that, but I'll put my Noster key in the show notes. I haven't shared on any other show. So if you're a self-hoster Noster user out there, I'll plug that this week. I guess. <laughs> I'm not committing to using it, though, but I'm going to give it a try. And once I figured out what uh, Notra is, I will I'll join you too. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, I wish to say thank you very much for listening. That was selfhosted.show slash 101.